So, um, good evening. You seem kind of far away. Is it possible to pull the chairs in? Sure, sure. Those of you who are going to stay mind coming coming in a bit. Thank you. Yeah, you can bring chairs out here if you don't have floor. Yeah, please, if you want to sit in a chair, you can bring your chair forward. Just make it a little <clears throat> cozier. Thank you. Um, so, let's see. I um, was wanting to talk this evening a little bit about um, mindfulness, which, as you just announced, is the topic of the, is it the half day or the day long? It sounded like the half day tomorrow. Yes. Um, uh, I guess Gil is going to talk about right mindfulness, and I um, have also been in the midst of teaching a, a series of classes on the Eightfold Path, and right mindfulness is the seventh of eight steps. Um, and uh, I've actually, this is my fourth class teaching this week. And every class has been in some fashion about mindfulness. So I've been kind of steeped in this teaching. And as each day goes by and each class goes by, I find myself more and more inspired by how amazing this practice is. So um, I, I want to open with um, the opening verse of what's called the Satipatthana Sutta. And the Satipatthana is a translation of, or what it translates as, is the four foundations of mindfulness. And it's the basic structure of meditation teaching that has been translated into the West as insight meditation or vipassana um, and is for any of you who've spent time here or at Spirit Rock or any of the kind of sister or brother sanghas, that's likely the style of meditation that you've been introduced to. And um, the opening of the sutta begins with um, Ananda, who is the attendant to the Buddha. And, you know, nothing that the Buddha ever said was written down. So um, uh, after the Buddha died, his attendant, who had been with him all the time and had this amazing capacity for remembering, remembered everything that the Buddha said and at the first council of uh, sort of senior monks and so on, they gathered all of the Buddha's teachings and um, through Ananda remembering and reciting them. Um, and so when you read the suttas, which are a compilation of the spoken teachings of the Buddha, it's not actually the Buddha speaking. It's Ananda remembering the words of the Buddha. And so classically, the, the way the suttas open is always with the phrase, thus I have heard. I'm sorry, thus have I heard. I always say it backwards. Thus have I heard. And this is Ananda saying, thus have I heard. He's telling you, I remember this time. So it opens, thus have I heard. On one occasion, the Blessed One, which is a name for the Buddha, the Blessed One was living in the Kuru country in a town of the Kurus named Kamasadama. There he addressed the monks thus. This is basically the way that suttas always open. Thus have I heard, and then the Buddha was at this place in this town with this name and these people. So he addresses the monks. Monks, 
He says, Venerable sir, they replied, and the blessed one said this, Monks, there is a direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of dukkha, of suffering and discontent, for the realization of nibbana, of freedom. And what is that direct path? It is the four satipatthanas, the four foundations of mindfulness. So this is quite a grand claim. There is a way, there's a direct path. It's not a meandering path, it's a direct path for purification, for the end of sorrow, for the um, end of suffering, and for freedom. And what is it? It is these four foundations of mindfulness. Um, And the four foundations themselves are they're translated in, in various ways, but they are, the first foundation is the body and the breath, which is why in most meditation teaching we always start with the body and the breath. That's the first foundation. The second foundation is translated in different ways, but it's, it's uh, Vedana, the feeling or feeling tone. And sometimes it's understood as, is the tone is the tone of your experience pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral? It's basically the, the feeling of the experience. The third foundation is, it's really the, the word is the translation of consciousness, but it's re, in terms of meditation practice, it really means mental states. So it's all of our thoughts, our feelings, our beliefs, our memories, all of that mental activity is part of the third foundation. And the fourth foundation is what's referred to as dhammas, as in dharmas. And um, uh, dhamma or dharma is generally translated as the truth. And it really means, um, as a foundation, it has to do with um, seeing things as they are, seeing the characteristics of reality. And specifically in Buddhist practice, that means seeing the truth of of dissatisfactoriness, of suffering, of difficulty, seeing the truth of impermanence, seeing the truth of of there not being any separate solid self. Those are the sort of core truths. But this is not to be believed, which is what the Buddha always said, but to actually be seen and discovered in the practice of meditation itself. So all of that said, I actually don't want to talk about the content of the four foundations, but rather about the awareness itself, the attention to each of these four foundations. Because ultimately, in the practice of mindfulness, it doesn't matter so much what you're mindful of. This is the amazing thing. You could be mindful of murderous rage, You could be mindful of calm and bliss. You could be mindful of a completely relaxed and contented body. You could be mindful of sharp pain in the body. You could be, whatever it is, you could be mindful of it. Pretty much anything goes. And that's because the content is not so important, which is complete reverse of how we usually think. We're, We're quite interested in the content of our experience. We're interested in our thoughts, we're interested in our feelings, we're interested in what's going on in our bodies, we're interested in all of that stuff. 
Not to mention that we're interested in all the stuff out there. We're interested in cars and shoes and money and houses and people and all that. And what is being pointed to here is that we're going we're gonna, to, in, in Zen there's a phrase, we turn the mind around. We're going to look backward and instead of paying attention to the content, we're going to pay attention to attention. There's a, there's a famous Zen story about Hakuin, who was a sort of irascible old Zen master. And uh, one of his students came to him one time and his student was having some trouble in his meditation practice. Some of you may be able to relate to this. And so the student came to, to uh, Hakuin and said, you know, I'm having some trouble. Can you help me out? Can you give me some advice? And Hakuin said, attention. The student said, okay, well, thank you uh, very much, but uh, maybe you could give me a little more, like maybe more than one word of help. And Hakuin said, attention, attention. And the student said, oh, thank you. I heard you the first time and I got it. Okay, attention, I get it. But I'm actually, I'm really having a rough time here. Could you, like, you know, help? And Hakuin said, attention, attention, attention. This is the source of, uh, and really the heart of what all meditative practice is about, is about cultivating a quality of attention which we are able to then attend to our experience. Um, And this is the heart of mindfulness, what mindfulness is about. I, as I read this, this uh, phrase over today and earlier this week, I thought, whoa, those are really grand claims that he's making about mindfulness. Like, okay, we could have the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation. It's pretty good. The disappearance of suffering. Um, the realization of freedom. So I don't know about you. Those sound very good and inspiring, but they also seem a little bit like Maybe you could just say something that was more applicable to me in my life. So I find, as I do a fair amount of teaching, I actually do a number of, um, I, I teach in a lot of different venues, including some classes on mindfulness inside organizations. And it's really interesting to me how this term has become kind of popularized. And I hear in the language of, you know, people who aren't super into meditation, Things like, well, we need to be mindful of blah, blah, blah. And I think, wow, it's really kind of gotten into the vernacular language of our time. Um, But I found that it's really helpful to be able to articulate why is mindfulness such a great thing? How might it benefit me, you, in the course of your life? And one of the things that I think most people can relate to pretty easily is that mindfulness is a way that helps us, it helps us begin to shift from reacting to our lives to, be able, to being able to respond to our lives. Most of the time, as various things arise, experiences arise, people arise, um, events arise, whether they're internal experiences or external experiences, we immediately react. And you may notice that sometimes those reactions are interesting or skillful, but often not. (laughs) 
And so there is a way in which this practice of mindfulness, of paying attention to what happens, begins to insert a little bit of space between the event and the reaction. So instead you get the event, noticing, and then instead of absolutely going for the the habitual reaction, there's a possibility of choicefulness. And in that choice is where the transition comes from living through reaction and instead living in a way of being able to respond. Um, And I, I think that most people get that, that if you really take a look at your life and certainly maybe the more difficult events or um, parts of your life, you may be able to recognize some reactivity in there somewhere. (laughs) If there's a person who really gets your goat, you know, there's probably some reactivity going on. And if you just react, probably not going to help that much, the situation. But if you can begin to be mindful, pay attention, notice what's happening, then you have this possibility of responding rather than reacting, of beginning to live a life that is less reactive, more intentional. So that's pretty good, I think, as a, uh, as a motivation. But there's more than that. that there's also not, it's not only good for preventing us from doing bad things. <laughs> One of the definitions of mindfulness that I found, which is a, a sort of very lesser-known definition of mindfulness, is uh, what's the word apamada, apamada, and it's tra- it's a Pali word. It's translated as the absence of madness. <laughs> and I think that sort of, in a way, it says it all, right? So this this non-reactivity, most reactivity is a kind of madness. I mean, certainly if you look around in our world, I think you can see that a lot of the madness in our world is a result of reactivity. And so mindfulness is an antidote to that. It helps us move away from madness. But it's also not just about undoing something negative. It's also the source of real satisfaction. And if you think about where we tend to look for satisfaction, mostly we're looking outside, again, to events, to people, to things. You know, if I only had... (laughs) A different job, a different partner, more money, a bigger house, different shoes, different weather. Fill in the blank. You probably have 10 or 12 of these or 10 or 1,200 of these a day, a week, a month. That it's just our normal habit is to think if only something were different, then I would be happy. This is a source of suffering for us. Not because it's not okay for there to be nice weather, for you to have a nice partner, or for you to have a nice house, but to think that that's going to make you happy. Oh, that's a problem. (laughs) So there is a way in which um, when we stop focusing, as I was saying at the beginning, on the content, and I will just say that often what happens when people come to spiritual practice or meditative practice is we just apply the same thing, but we turn it in. We think, oh, if only I could have that really nice, peaceful state of mind. If only that, then I would be happy. But it doesn't exactly work out. So we're applying the same idea that we normally apply to our worldly life now to our spiritual life. This is what Chogram Trungpa called spiritual materialism. Same mindset applied to our interior world. 
But if we really start to pay attention, we can notice that that's not where satisfaction comes from. Have you noticed? You get what you want, and then what happens? It's not that interesting, usually, for that long. Maybe if we're lucky, a few hours or a day or even a week. And then, you know, the car gets its first dent in it. Or the person who we thought was so fabulous, you know, says something we don't like. Or whatever it is, the the shine begins to fade. And then we have to go after more. More, 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 more. To to feed the habit. But that's because it's never going to (laughs) work. So instead, the idea here is that what really brings us satisfaction is not getting what we want, but it's the quality of attention that we bring to our experience. So I, I always think of the example. It's kind of a silly example, but you know, if you, if you sit and watch TV and eat a bag of chocolate without paying much attention to the chocolate, it will not be very fulfilling. It will be filling, and probably it will make you sick at a certain point if you're really not paying attention. But it's not actually very fulfilling. But if you take one fill-in-the-blank, one orange, one Godiva chocolate, one something, and you give your full attention to it, and you really savor the taste, and you notice how it changes it, that's where satisfaction comes from. It has to do with the contact that we make with our experience. And mindfulness kind of, um, I was was teaching a beginning class last night, and this woman, we did a raisin meditation, you know, an eating meditation, and this woman said, oh, the flavor just exploded in my mouth because because she was paying attention. Same flavor as she always has when she eats a raisin. But because she was paying attention to it, it changed the experience. It brought greater satisfaction. And, and then there is this last piece, which is really what the Buddha is pointing to in his statement. And that is that mindfulness is the doorway to, it's often referred to as the path of insight, the path of cultivating wisdom, which is that it's through mindfulness. And as we refine the quality of our attention more and more, we come to see things as they really are. We actually come to see the truth. And that, in this kind of radical way, is what the teaching is proposing, is where freedom is. That the real suffering, the heart of the suffering for us as human beings, is not because we're bad or we're evil or we're fill in the blank. It's because we're confused. We don't actually understand who we are and who other people are and how the world works. And if we did understand it, this is basically the Buddha, what the Buddha is proposing, if we really understood, not cognitively, but in a deep way, if we had really deep insight into how things really are, we would behave differently, the world would be different, we, wouldn't, we, would, we would behave in ways that are both wise and kind. We couldn't help it. But we don't. Not, again, not because we're bad people, but because we're not seeing clearly. So this is the, the kind of uh, heart of what uh, is the ultimate gift, in a way, of mindfulness practice. So that's sort of the pep talk a little bit about why mindfulness. But I, I want to say a little bit more about, um, as I've been 
studying and reading and getting really, it's really been a wonderful course of learning for me about mindfulness. I want to share a little bit of what I learned about some of the definitions because for me it really, like the woman with the raisin exploding in her mouth, it's really sort of opened and expanded and enhanced my own understanding of mindfulness. And then we'll open it up and take some questions from you. So one definition, as I said, is is wonderful. It's a very, um, I had never heard this before, this definition, apamata, which is absence of madness. So that's pretty good, I think. But the more common translation of the word, um, or the, yeah, the more common translation of the word uh, mindfulness from the Pali is sati, S-A-T-I, like the, the sati center, which is affiliated with Insight Meditation Center here. And um, interestingly, sati actually has, um, it comes from two different Pali verbs. And one verb is um, sarati. And, the, and sarati is translated as to remember. And it's interesting because in one, on one hand, um, to remember includes the kind of remembering of the teaching. Just as we are um, being assisted by Ananda in the thus have I heard, Ananda is remembering the teaching of the Buddha and he's offering it to us so that we too can remember. But really, the essence of remembering in this way when we were talking about mindfulness is a much more interesting and kind of radical kind of uh, sort of remembering, which is about remembering the present. It's actually about remembering now. And this seems kind of odd in a way, but it's not because, you know, how much time do we spend remembering the present? (laughs) Not that much. Most of our time, we are, someone asked a, um, uh, an Eastern sage, what is your impression of Western culture? And he said, lost in thought. <laughs> and our lost in thoughtness is largely about thinking about the future, reminiscing, rehashing, worrying about the past. We're rarely remembering the present. So this is a key aspect of what Uh, mindfulness is about and it's interesting that the word remember um, first of all it has this nice prefix re and the the prefix re means again and so this is I think an essential part of understanding mindfulness because it's not like we're going to get something that we don't ever uh, already have The, the implication in remembering is it's a returning it's a coming back to it's an again. So mindfulness isn't about becoming somebody else or, or improving even. It's more about returning home. It's coming back. And the particular um, uh, definition or understanding of the word remember, remember is like member as in the parts of the body, and to remember is to make whole again. And when we remember the present, there is a way in which it brings us into wholeness. The kind of fragmentation that happens when we are lost in thought or spinning in past, future, past, future has a kind of fragmentation. It can have a kind of alienation. It doesn't have a wholeness in it. 
And so there's this implication in mindfulness of a, of a wholeness, of a healing, of a coming, a coming back into, I was thinking as I was driving down tonight, you know, the um, Humpty Dumpty sat on the wall, Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. So there's this image of brokenness. And yet the deal is for us humans, unlike Humpty Dumpty, we can come back together again. And what's being suggested is that how do we come back together? Mindfulness. We remember now. We remember the present. So it's a wonderful way of understanding what this is about. And yet, at least for me, I'm quite pragmatically oriented. I still think, well, that's all very nice and fine. Remembering now, wholeness, healing. How do you do that? And this is where the second definition of mindfulness is, is actually quite useful. Um, and the second definition is another Pali verb, which is anupasati. And um, the, the actual... The actual definition of anupasati is to repeatedly see, to repeatedly see, which to me sounds very close to um, the word respect, which is to look again. It's a wonderful way of seeing that word. That's what to so re again, like remember is again and spect is like spectacles has to do with seeing. So when we respect something, we're willing to look again. And this is part of the quality of mindfulness, is that we're willing to repeatedly see, to look again. In other words, to bring our attention to our experience. And this is the sort of three aspects of uh, mindfulness. I looked up many, many different people's definitions. And the three pieces are, the most important is this quality of attention. The second is that it's in the present. It's remembering now. And the third is that it's non-judgmental. So it's not analytical. It doesn't have commentary. It doesn't have an opinion. It's, it's uh, in Zen we call it bare awareness. Clearly observe, we're just seeing what's there without all the extra stuff that we put on top of it. Um, this is quite difficult for us, actually. <laughs> um, so this is the this is the uh, definition or prescribed path for how do we remember? How do we come home to wholeness? How do we do that? We practice mindfulness. We repeatedly see. We're willing to bring our attention in a non-judgmental way into the present moment by moment by moment. Very simple, quite difficult, as I'm sure any of you who've sat for more than 10 minutes have um, come to see. So one of the things that's really interesting about the teachings on mindfulness that the Buddha gave over time is that if you look through all of his teachings on mindfulness, he never, he never describes mindfulness as interfering with what's happening. So this is this um, uh, way of saying that it's just 
to pay attention without tinkering. So we're not trying to change our experience. We're just seeing it repeatedly, again and again, willing to just notice, note, pay attention without adding that little bit of, then could you move a few inches to the left or to the right experience, right? That's what we normally do. We have an experience and then we go, okay, and I like it, I don't like it. If I like it, I want more, I grab on. If I don't like it, but we're constantly adding commentary on top of the just noticing. So um, the other piece is that uh, mindfulness doesn't in and of itself or the intention in practicing mindfulness isn't to change our experience, right? And actually, mindfulness itself doesn't change the experience, but it does deepen it. And this is very interesting, I think. What does that mean? Mindfulness, when we bring this quality of attention, of ref- and an increasingly refined attention to our experience, this is the explosion of the taste in the mouth, right? The, the experience itself comes alive. This is, as I was saying earlier, this is actually where real satisfaction comes from. And, again, the more deeply we see how things are, the, the wiser we become. The more that, as I said earlier, we're able to, to um, respond to the world with wisdom. And wisdom, unlike knowledge, is not about knowing things. Wisdom is this quality of being able to put all the pieces together, of making whole again. So it's difficult to practice mindfulness or something that's, that in some way is so simple. Um, it's difficult on one hand because if we use the two main definitions, it's kind of hard to remember. Have you noticed? It's just hard to remember to do it. And part of the reason it's hard to remember to do it is because there is this kind of force field of habit, this lost in thought habit, which is constantly pulling us away from now. And there's external things that are pulling us away from now, but there's also our own mental spin that's pulling us away from now. And this is why the Buddha described, or it was one way of understanding how the Buddha described that practice as going against the stream. One way that practice is going against the stream is that we don't actually live in a culture that really encourages us to sit down and be quiet and reflect. Right? Mostly the culture wants us to go out and buy stuff. But it's also going against the stream, not just socially or culturally or politically. It's also going against the stream of our own habit. And our own habit of mind is a wonderful Buddhist word called papancha, which means proliferation of mind. So the mind will just, I mean, you know this, the mind will just go and go and go and go and go and go. And so part of the, part of the remembering is that it requires a certain kind of effort, actually. And it's not an effort to do something exactly. It's more of an effort to unhook from the habit that we're normally caught in. And I mean, people have all kinds of different ways to help themselves remember. You come to an evening like this. You know, you put sticky notes everywhere. Wake up, breathe, remember. And those things are kind of goofy, but actually 
we need help. And whatever we can do to help ourselves remember is good. It's useful. It's helpful. And here, the thing about remembering that's really great is that you can do it any moment. Any moment that you catch yourself, you know, lost in thought. Oh, lost in thought. That's it. You've just remembered. And the, the deal is that's all you have to do. But it's rarely all that we do. <laughs> right? I caught my, I can't believe that I was thinking again. And why was I thinking about that? And here, here I am. I've been meditating now for three weeks. And I don't, I don't have a single moment without it. That's what we do. We add on top of the remembering. So there's a, the first part of, of the definition of mindfulness is that it requires some degree of effort to remember. But the second part of, of mindfulness, which is just to, to just clearly see without adding all that commentary, is more of a, it's almost an uneffording. <laughs> so on the one hand, we have to kind of encourage ourselves to intervene in our habit. And then the second part is we have to encourage ourselves to step back from our propensity to pile commentary on top of our experience. And so there's, there are kind of two different kinds of effort, in a way, that are needed um, for us to be able to be mindful. So it's, it's, um, it's, in a certain way, hard work, but a lot of benefit. And one of the things that I think you may have begun to taste, those of you who've started to meditate or have been meditating for a while, is that there is a sweetness in awareness itself. I, I often say to people who are beginning to practice that in the first in the first years, I usually think in the beginning, like the first ten years or so of meditation practice, I often say it's bittersweet. And what's bitter about it is often the content. So a lot of times when you slow down and you start meditating and you think, oh, I'm going to slow down and start meditating, it's going to be really quiet and peaceful. And then you just can't believe what's going on in your mind, you know, in stereo. Wow. All of that stuff that's happening or the, the fatigue you have in your body or the pain that's there or the and even when you have those great moments of they don't last. All that this is all various forms of dukkha that you're seeing clearly. But what begins to happen is that we stop identifying so much with the content. And we begin resting more in the sweetness of the awareness itself. Because the awareness actually is never muddied, never hurt, never harmed in any way by the content. Whatever it is, pleasant, unpleasant, wonderful, horrible. And that's the sweetness. And this is, at least for me, been part of what's really um, encouraged me to stay with it, to stay on. So let me, let me, uh, I found this wonderful, someone sent me actually this wonderful poem that captures this sweetness. And uh, I'll read it to you and then hear from you. Um, the, the poem's called This Moment. And for me, it really captures both the way that mindfulness helps um, bring our experience into a kind of vividness and also the sweetness of it. This moment, a neighborhood at dusk. Things are getting ready 
to happen out of sight. Stars and moths and rinds slanting around fruit. But not yet. One tree is black. One window is yellow as butter. A woman leans down to catch a child who has run into her arms this moment. Stars rise, moths flutter, apples sweeten in the dark. A woman leans down to catch a child who has run into her arms this moment. It's all we ever have is this moment. And when we begin to practice mindfulness, we get to have our moments. We get to actually taste and even savor the sweetness of exactly what's happening now, rather than having life run by and we wake up one day and say, my child is grown. So let me pause there and um, open to see if you have comments, questions, complaints, confusions, insights, experiences with mindfulness. Yeah, oh, the mic, right? Can you say your name? I'm Mark. Mark. And uh, I've been meditating for about a year. Mm-hmm. And. Uh, as you say, I, constant, I, I do forget to remember. Yes. So I, lo- I love that now, and I'm, and I'm thinking in my daily life, what kind of tricks or mm-hmm. techniques can I use to remember? Yeah. And you mentioned a couple things, and I'm just sort of thinking, give me some more. Yeah, yeah, right. You want some tips. Yeah. Yeah. Does anybody else have things that you use that help you remember? No. So whatever I say for you, the rest of you can use too. <laughs> um, I, so so two, two things that I think are really helpful. One is um, to pick mundane daily events, th- things that happen repeatedly, as prompts to help you remember. And the simpler, the better. So here are a few examples, and you can look for some of your own. Uh, opening a door. It's a great moment. Stop lights. A great moment. (laughs) Um, Phone rings. Computers booting up. Waiting for the elevator. I do, as I was saying before, I do a fair amount of work inside organizations, so I give this assignment to people and I ask them to, to begin practicing mindfulness in the context of their daily life. And so some of these I'm stealing from them. One of my favorites was someone said, you know, I get to work and I turn on my computer and it actually takes a moment for the computer to boot up. There's a moment. So those are some examples. Um, Yeah. Yeah, thanks. Oh, the other thing I was going to say about it is that um, somehow because of how we are, um, we can have something that works for a while and then it just goes into habit. So it's, it's, uh, you, I think it's useful to pick something that is simple and kind of repeated 
um, don't try to t- say I'm going to um, don't take something that's too big because you, if, it's, if it happens too much you're trying to remember too often you actually will end up not remembering at all because it's kind of overwhelming at the same time when, when you notice that something has worked for a while and it stops working pick something else because that's, it's just the nature of how it goes this, um, this uh, mala that I'm wearing is traditionally it's often referred to as self-remembering beads and it, it's a lot of times it can be used as a way to remember. So some people use things like that, physical prompts. You may have a stone or a photograph or something in your environment that, you know, as I said earlier, a sticky note that helps you remember. But at least for me, initially when I put this on, it helps me for a while and then stops helping. <laughs> so I have to find something else. Yeah. So it's a practice in creativity as well as mindfulness. <laughs> yes? I'm a little confused. What is it you're supposed to be remembering? Are you supposed to turn your attention to the doorknob? Uh-huh. I, I, I'm afraid I must be very, very dense, and, and I, I, I didn't get that. So the question was, um, when you uh, open the door or stop at the stoplight, what is it you're remembering? Or, or what am I turning my attention to? Is it the stoplight or uh-huh. the, my, the silence that I might have? Uh-huh. Uh, the cessation of my activity while I'm sitting in the car at the stop. I mean, what is it that I'm <laughs> yeah. supposed to be mindful of? Right. So my, not, my, not, my not interior world or the exterior world? I yeah, so, so it's a great question. I, I'm afraid I didn't use that at all. Right. <laughs> yeah. So the basic idea is that um, our attention tends to be, as I was describing before, lost in thought. So any moment of oh, red light, if you're actually present with the red light, you're not lost in thought. So you can use a red light to go, oh, right, red light. For some people, it's very useful at that point to then do something like feel their feet on the floor, take a breath, coming into the present. But actually, anything that takes you out of the kind of mental spin that is more of our habit lands you here. And remember at the beginning when I was talking about the four foundations of mindfulness, the content doesn't really matter. It's the attention that matters. So you can use a stoplight, you can use your breath, you can whatever you use is fine. But the point is shifting you from past future to now. So so you would, you would perhaps say I'm going to take this you would be mindful of the fact that you're going to turn your attention to the stoplight. And use as a meditative moment? Yeah. Oh, so, in other words, you would concentrate on the stoplight as opposed to your breath? You could concentrate on whatever you want. This is, this is the habit for us, is that we're, we're so interested in the content. It's not actually about the stoplight. It's not actually about your breath. It's about being present with whatever's happening. So you're just picking a something to help you shift from the habit, which is not to remember the present, to like, oh, right, here I am. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I find in the context of what you're saying, um, the stoplight, for instance, 
uh, picked this up years ago, uh, and the connotation was uh, count the uh, speed signs. And that was to, it was a traffic school. Uh-huh. <laughs> that got me into counting. Uh-huh. So as I sit at a traffic light, I will just I'll be mindful, but uh, I will count. turn a lot of the voices off, and instead of being impatient at the light, which is right. a normal thing to do, mm-hmm. I just sit there, one Mississippi, two Mississippi, or one something, two something, mm-hmm. and, and I'll get to a point like, this light has been a long time, and I'm going, wait a minute, only got up to 13, <laughs> i got to get up to like 60 or 120, you know, because it takes a long time for them to, to change, and so it helps me to get out of the, um, right. the monkey mind and all the voices and all the thoughts. But in uh, what, what the lady is saying, um, like you say, it's not the stoplight or the breathing. It's to turn your mind off of all that has happened, that is going to happen, and just be present with yourself sitting there in the car or right. in the seat. Yeah, and, and, and to, to, to be careful because <laughs> you can be counting and be present. You can count one Mississippi, two Mississippi, and be totally spaced out. Oh, that's true. That's the, that's the trick. It's the same thing when you're doing more of a formal meditation practice and you're using a noting practice, right? You can be noticing, noting in, out, in, out, and you suddenly realize that you're just kind of like a robot saying in, out, in, out, and you're actually not present at all. So this is how slippery it is. And so if that works, if the one Mississippi, two Mississippi, great. But be careful that it doesn't just become another place to space out. Another habit. Yeah. Right. I, I am making it a point that it doesn't. And I, I also, when I'm driving, I will just be breathing. Yeah. And, and be a, pay attention to myself sitting there driving and breathing and just looking ahead and catching everything that I'm seeing as I'm going. But I'm being present right where I'm at. Right. Instead of all of this, I have the problem with fear. Right. I just turn the fear off, get the fearful thoughts to start lowering and just be present with the driving. Not right. where I'm going, just the driving. So that if you remember at the beginning, I talked about the first foundation of mindfulness is the body and breath. And generally, it's taught that way for good reason, because the body and breath are always in the present. And so when you do that, stop at a stoplight or open the door, that can be kind of a piece that you add that can help you come into the present by feeling the contact of the hand on the doorknob or feeling your feet on the floor or taking a breath, as you said. Any, of, any way that we shift our attention from mental spin to sensation, body and breath, is a way that helps us land in the present. It's a, it's a wonderful thing that the, the body is always in the present. And again, it's very tricky because we can take a breath and then immediately think, well, that wasn't a very good breath. You know, that was a really short breath. That breath was really... Or, you know, I should be taking more than one breath. Or... But it's okay. Even if you just get one moment of even half a breath, you get to an inhale, and then you, it's, it's better than nothing. right? And this is the thing about mindfulness, is that in a way like going to the gym, it's a capacity that we can learn. There's a training in it. 
And so to assume that you should sit down and immediately be completely mindful and totally present and not have any thoughts, you know, many people come get very frustrated with meditation practice because they've read something where they hear about what it's supposed to be like. Um, it's you don't go to the gym and pick up the 200 weight, 200 pound weights first. You build your capacity, and little by little over time, you'll have more and more moment, moments of mindfulness. You know, you'll get to Miss 13 Mississippi, and you'll still be there. Right? Instead of, I mean, just see how long you can follow your breath. It's really amazing. Most people can't get through more than two or three breaths and really stay with it before whoosh, off you go. But one breath, that's good. And then see if you can do another one. Rather than thinking, I should stay with my breath for the whole 30 minutes. Good luck. <laughs> you want to do it breath by breath. Bird by bird, as Annie Lamott says. Yeah, please. I find myself planning a lot, and some of the planning is required for for life. You know, planning a grocery list or planning what I have to do during the day. Do you recommend a time we set aside for that? Because it does take us out of the moment, and then you get wrapped up in the planning. Yep. So what do you suggest for necessary types of when you have to do, you know, planning or? Yeah, absolutely. Planning is good, but not while you're meditating. <laughs> and and it's, not, it's not to say that, you know, again, there's nothing wrong with planning. But when you're practicing mindfulness, the, what, the practice with planning is just to notice, oh, planning, planning, to be aware of the planning rather than to get caught in the planning which is more what we usually do. And you can say to yourself, I'll make the list when I'm done. So it doesn't, you don't have to say, I shouldn't be planning, bad planning, you know, that's that's all extra. You don't have to do that. Planning is useful, but not, not right now. Yeah, so just to be clear about the intention of what the capacity is. This is you're you're building a capacity for um, mindful, present attention when you're practicing meditation. And it's fine to plan, but if you're lost in planning, you're not doing that. So yeah, you talked about the the two competing things: remembering and then also judging. Right. So it's really hard for me to to do the the second part. I can I can do the remembering easily. Uh-huh. But do you have any techniques to, to get yourself out of that judgment mode? Yeah, it's very tricky, isn't it? Yeah, because we do it so quickly. It's, um, I find it very heartening, actually, that in the Buddhist tradition and literature, um, it's talked about the, the pervasiveness of the judging mind. Um, and in particular, there's this somewhat, if you want to read it that way, comical figure um, called Mara, M-A-R-A, in the Buddhist scriptures. And Mara is this, this figure who just keeps showing up, kind of dogging the Buddha and saying, you're never going to, you know, all this stuff. And it said, this is the part I find most heartening, that until the seventh stage of enlightenment, Mara keeps showing up, which is a way of saying that you don't judge your judgment. It's going to be there. It's going to be there. You're doing something that's very threatening to a certain part of you, 
by just noticing and, and not going into planning and worrying and spinning and so on. And so judgment's going to come up. It's basically going, yikes, you shouldn't be doing this. Um, and, and the basic practice for judgment or for planning or for anything is the same, which is you notice it. So the degree to which you can begin to notice, oh, judging, and you notice it, no, there's judging. Oh, there's judging. And judging is very slippery. Sometimes it'll come as a voice saying, you shouldn't be planning. And sometimes it will just, you'll just experience it as a contraction in the body. You'll notice, I feel really tight and I don't know why. And then you realize, oh, it's because there's an unspoken assumption here about I should be sitting up straight and I'm not. So I'm tight. So it can, it can be very, very slippery. Um, in the Buddhist scriptures, there's a wonderful place where um, basically there's, there's two different images I'll offer you. One is that when Mara comes to visit the Buddha, his way of practicing mindfulness with Mara is he says, I know you, Mara. Oh, I see you. That's what he says. I see you, Mara. This is mindfulness. This is in your case, he's saying, I see you, judgment. I hear you, judgment. There you are. And then it doesn't have you by the throat in quite the same way. So it took you 10 years to get past that. <laughs> no, it's, it's still there. Okay. You know, I am but not at the seventh easier. stage of enlightenment yet. And even if I were, it would still be there. <laughs> but I will say my experience with judgment is that over time, it hasn't gotten away, but it's gotten very um, uh, subtle. Where I used to I remember the very, the very first years when I sat, started sitting long retreats. At some point, I remember having this sitting there and just everything. I was just under barrage of judgment. And it felt like at some point I got an image of just like every time you're never going to be able to do this. Who do you think you are thinking you could meditate? You're a terrible. And at some point I got an image of every time that phrase would come, I'd see myself getting punched in the face, you know, or kicked in the stomach. And I realized, wow, that's what's happening here. And many years later, you know, that that kind of brutal critique went away. And many years later, I remember I was sitting, I was practicing at Tassajara in the monastery, and I was sitting and I heard this little voice come in and say, well, that's pretty good, but maybe you could just sit up just a little bit straighter. It was the same voice. But now it was sort of, you know, a librarian with white gloves on kind of checking me instead of somebody with punching gloves, you know, but the same thing. And now, often for me, I may not hear a voice. I'll just notice that I'm tight. And I'll think, why do I feel so tight? Oh, there's something. And I have to look for it a little bit. So it's, it's, it's a whole own practice. And, again, the most important thing, I think, is don't judge the judgment. Just include it in what you're mindful of. I, my guess is there isn't a person in this room who has not become aware of judgment. If you're, if you're paying attention, you'll become aware of judgment. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I think we have to stop. Do we have to stop? It's, it's like one minute before nine o'clock. Okay, one more question. How about judgments of right and wrong? Kindness and passion. Aren't there good, moral, without the judgments? 
Aren't there or good? Maybe I'm misunderstanding. How aren't there good? Judgment. Aren't there good and bad judgments? So maybe a way to talk about it is um, the difference between judgment and discernment. Discernment is very useful, right? Judgment tends to be more pejorative. And and when we're practicing mindfulness, judgment is extra. In other words, there's no you don't need to be judging. You just need to be noticing. End of story. Um, in other places in your life, absolutely, you need discernment. Please discern. But judging is a little bit different. Judging tends to have a critique in it. So let's just take a moment in closing to um, sit again just for, just for a minute or so. And we'll dedicate our evening. So remembering the present is available in each moment. It's always here just a breath away. And we'll just dedicate whatever benefit or merit has come from our sitting together, talking together, engaging in this wonderful and mysterious topic of mindfulness to the benefit of all beings everywhere. May all beings be happy and peaceful. May all beings be safe and free from danger. May all beings live with ease. And may all beings awaken and be free. Thank you very much for your kind attention.